Hello, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of Circuit 42. Uh, I am your host, Ian, and I am here with guest host, Odfell, professional X-Men wizard and cosplay ninja. Hello. And, of course, Bunny, uh, newest uh, newest guest host to the show, and hopefully and hopefully a regular guest host at that. She is a secret lawyer and secret ninja. Everyone's a ninja Hello. when you join Circuit 42. Oh, yes. Absolutely. I think that's, isn't that a qualification requirement? Yep. If not, you you just have to live on the street like a hobo, because we're cruel. We're cruel like that. All right. So speaking of hobos, uh, we are here to talk about uh, X Men, and not specific, not just X Men, but we are here to talk about the di- kind of the diverse audience of X Men, uh, really since the Claremont, really since the Claremont era in 1974, and it's interesting because when you look at a lot of comic books. They have kind of a very narrow focus in terms of their fandom, but X Men has never really been that way. There's by like, even um, like uh, Claremont and uh, Claremont and Wine, uh, Louise Simonson, they always have kind of commented on the broader overall um, audience that X Men's had in terms of uh, gender, in terms of race, in terms of sexuality, and it's interesting to say the least. And that's something I really want to tackle, especially with it being Pride Month. Yeah, and and I think it's it's very obvious just by looking at the original X Men team. Like it wasn't just a bunch of white bros; it was a very diverse group, and it it continued to be throughout its run. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's why Giant Size really was kind of a cultural reset for X Men, and why more people were invested in X-Men because, you know, you have mutants that, you know, look human and then you have mutants that look less human. And I think through that, there's different levels of struggles that, you know, people in the LGBTQ plus community or, you know, people of color or even people with disabilities are going to look to that and be like, I feel like I'm on the outside too. I can relate to these characters and their struggles for X, Y, Z because these characters aren't fitting into the universe either and they're kind of being outcasted for this reason or that reason. And I feel like that's what really separates them from like the Fantastic Four or the Avengers that are celebrated is X-Men really opens this pocket for a whole bunch of people who feel like they're on the outside to feel like they can connect with characters. Yeah, they, they were the or the outcasts of the the mutants. They ranked, they were they were the ones that really were tagged the mutants. Yeah, and in fact that was actually gonna be their original name and was the mutants and i always thought it was kind of interesting. i wish they had done what they had discussed with age of apocalypse where instead of them being called the x-men they were actually going to be called the mutants in the age of apocalypse miniseries but apparently that was something that the editorial team just like they just shut down and i'm like that's kind of cool but at the same time i can see where people are like what is the mutants and not buying the book unfortunately right. Which sadly has not changed much since 1995. <laughs> X Men has. Yeah, it, it's of... it's really. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. I was just saying X Men has a little more sex appeal to it. Yep. Just a tiny bit. And also, yeah, I I feel like too like if they would have called it the mutants from the get go too like you have these five teenagers who really look normal. It wouldn't have really made sense. Like, you've got five white kids going to a school getting called mutants. Why? Where I feel like the X-Men sounded more like a team. Someone would read the book and then be like, oh, they're, they're mutants. They have, like, powers through this. Because, I mean, unless Iceman's in ice form and Angel has his wings out, they all look normal. 
Yeah, pretty much. Um, but yeah, definitely for the original book, I'm glad it was called X-Men. It would have been an interesting experiment, but like we were saying, that a lot of people would probably not take to it just because they're not immediately aware of the reason that they gave it that name. Yeah, it's one. It's interesting to think about because we talk about, uh, we you mentioned, um, you know, people uh, people with disabilities and how they could take away from the book and they connect with the book. And um, one of the things I wish they had done but they hadn't was that in Generation X, um, instead of like the convoluted backstory that uh, Admiral Monet had, uh, where she's like part of the same mm. person and there's like two siblings combined and blah blah blah. Um, apparently it was going to be as broken down to the simple fact that M was actually autistic. Right. Marvel to- actually told, remember they told Scott Lobdell that people would be, they were afraid that people would be uncomfortable with there being an autistic character in the book. And I'm like, do you, are you looking at the universe that this is and why that would actually be really important and why that would be really groundbreaking? And I'm like, you, you edit these books. What are you doing? Because yeah. that would have been way better than weird, convoluted, twin-half-clone story. Yeah, when I try to explain that to anyone, they they got to give me an eye like, really? I mean, get this. Um, <laughs> and I, I, truly, I, I love Generation X, and that really upped the ante for me was when that, that series came out. But yeah, the, the Monet and Penance and the twins... The whole try, trying to, yeah, I, I think just uh, being autistic would have made a lot more sense, and it would have it would have spoken to the audience so much more. I mean, Monet was already a groundbreaking character, just being wasn't she the first Muslim character in the Marvel universe? I didn't know her character was. In, I didn't realize her character was Muslim. I. I I Believe. don't. I, I never read Generation X. I don't remember Penance being Muslim, but that's not to oh, say Penance. she's not, because I've barely encountered her. Uh, I think it was Monet that was supposed to be a Muslim character. I think with a lot of these arcs, so you can see where X-Men writers understood what their audience was, who they were connecting with, and really tried to push the boundaries on what could get past the stricter censorship of Marvel throughout the decades. Because there's so many retcons where you see like they were so close to crossing this threshold and then had to go through like five hoops to backtrack, whether that is, you know, um, North Star coming out. Nope, actually, he's just a fairy prince because we can't do that or um you know rachel and kitty mystique and destiny being rogue's mom like there's so many times they've had to backtrack because they do have these progressive ideas they know who's connecting with their stories but up until the last like five years they just haven't been able to do it and that's something that i i hope the hickman era is able to unpack and revisit and actually flush out um and celebrate about x-men and Oh, real quick, I did find out that uh, M is M was Muslim or, or M is Muslim. I had, I actually didn't know about that, and uh, but yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense too. Because remember, you and I were talking about before the show that you know, the people on the internet, that specific set of people on the internet who tried to say, oh, there was no evidence that Kitty Pride was bisexual, and I'm like, it's called reading. <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah. One of the ones that makes me the most mad is when they had Mystique and Irene as Rogue's parents. And I'm like, that makes sense. Like, we've seen time and time again that Rogue is capable of shape-shifting. Why not? But I guess the idea of that was was too much in the 90s. So then they retconned it that she was adoptive. And 
you know, that is a valid form of parenting, but it's something that I would like to see re-retconned because I think that Mystique being as gender fluid as she has been throughout the decades of comics, it'd be really powerful for them to have her be Rogue's canon father, frankly. And that, that's one of the biggest retcons they've stepped back that I'm like, this would actually be really cool to, to talk about nowadays when they can talk about it. And it's interesting because, like, in Mike Carey's run um, during, like, the around the Crochet, Mike Carey very much ignored, you know, the, the, the whole, that whole retcon and basically, and basically just pushed, no, this is her daughter. This is their daughter. And mm-hmm. I appreciate, like, looking back as well, because I know you recently did the, um, did the Messiah Complex video with, uh, Near Mint Condition. And, like, that's one of the big parts yes. near the Necrocia era, right around what would be the end of that. And I think that's interesting that he was like, yeah, who cares about that? I'm going to tell the story the way it should be told. Exactly. But, um, yeah, I mean, really, I mean, really looking at it, it is one of, it is one of those books that, like you said earlier, Bunny, that, in terms of the characters, especially after with the uh, all new, all different team, we went from like five, like five white teenagers and a bald friend to like this very just very diverse group uh, with that with that era with Len Wein and with Chris Claremont. And while Claremont obviously should get credit for the work that he did for 17 years, and uh, I know he goes wrote portions of the Giant Size X Men, a lot of that did come from that first issue with Len Wein's run as they kind of revitalize the X-Men series, because you have characters who, like, I don't think people realize, like with something like Star Trek, people don't realize the controversy of having a Russian superhero. And the, the fact, too, diversity saved X-Men, the property. Like, the book was failing. They got to 66 issues, and then they reprinted 66 issues, and it was on its deathbed, and they just threw a Hail Mary and went, you know what, screw it, you write this, come up with a one-shot, and that was giant size. And like without the diversity, the series would have died. And I think that that speaks volumes because other books were too afraid to do that at the time. And I think the fact that that's kind of what saved the franchise and propelled it into the future is, is powerful. After I made the comment about it not originally being a bunch of white bros and I thought about like, well, actually they were <laughs> at the very beginning. It was just like a group of white kids. But yeah, the... The X-Men that I came to know in 1992 was the the more diverse team, the, you know, what closer to what we know of it today, you know, after it was reimagined and saved from itself. And it really, to me, you know, as we learned, you know, it was a product of, you know, trying to to talk about civil rights issues and, but it grew so much more to there. I always saw it more as speaking to, you know, complete diversity, including disabilities and including just, you know, all different walks of life and ethnicities and nationalities that you just don't see in, in a lot of other media or, or genres, and I think that's continued to keep me a fan throughout the years, and I, I never was drawn to, I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not an Avengers fan. I was never really drawn to any of the other Marvel properties in the way that I was drawn to the X-Men, and I, I do like Spider-Man, like, because that was also just a thing when 
when we were growing up, it was Spider-Man was wildly popular for many generations. But I always looked at Peter Parker as like, yeah, it's, it's a, some white kid. I don't really relate to him, you know, it, but I could relate to the X-Men. I mean, really, you look at I mean, you look at a character like um, Storm and the, there was nothing like Storm before, really. Because really, the two, the two, like in my opinion, the two really pivotal, uh, pivotal um, uh, black characters in comics around that era were really her and Cap and uh, Captain Marvel. But with Storm, without instead of being a different iteration of the same character, she was very much her own identity. She's very much her own character, and the idea of such a unique take on it because people on the first issue, it's like, okay, she's an African weather goddess. But the same, then you realize as the series progresses. She's not actually African. She's actually from New York. Her family came here. You have this whole development of her character. And especially with Claremont, who I'm pretty sure is actually in love with Storm, which I can't blame him. Um, it, it really, she really is a character by herself that changes the game. And uh, Storm is by far my favorite. I am also in love with her. So yeah, I, I can't, can't blame anyone for being, and I think he did write her very well. Um, and that is something that when the X-Men movie franchise came about, I was so disappointed in the way that Storm was portrayed and written and just like kind of she was just there. They never, at least in the first few movies, didn't do anything with her at all. They almost ignored <laughs> her existence at some points. So it's like this this is a very strong leader and very complex character. It just it always disappoints. A lot of things about the movies always disappointed me, but her in particular. And I, I was happy when they reinvented her a little bit in the the Age of Apocalypse movie because it's like, okay, yes, I can, I, I feel better about this. But we've never seen Storm on the screen, with the exception of the animated series in which she was. You know, closer to to the character that we know and love from the books. I just speaking of speaking of Apocalypse, I just remember uh, myself and Jen being so upset after Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix because it's like not only do you finally have a perfect casting for Storm, but you finally have a perfect cast for Nightcrawler. And I love Alan Cumming as Nightcrawler, but I really think um, I can't remember the name of the, of the, of the actors the actor's name on the top of my head right now but the casting for them was perfect and i'm pretty sure unless they unless they do some of that completely unexpected they have these two perfect castings are going to be completely wasted uh with the mcu because i don't expect them to bring back the two of them and unfortunately those roles yeah i was really disappointed i feel like the horsemen should have been someone closer to the x-men like if i had to pick a lineup it would have been um Mystique, Magneto, and Xavier, and Havoc as the Horsemen, because then you've got, like, blood against blood, then you've got, you know, someone you look up to is now evil, like, everyone's tied in, whether they're related or it's, like, a mentor figure, and then they could have had Storm, Psylocke, and Angel join the X-Men, because it's weird that, that, like, they were Horsemen, and then at the end they're like, oops, haha, we're good guys, we join you now, and it just, it, it really was a bad taste in my mouth. I feel like the whole thing could have been something really good because the casting was phenomenal um i feel like if we see any carryover in the mcu it'll be new mutants because it was kind of a fringe property that got weirdly placed in the merge but 
Yeah, I agree. I think that the Apocalypse movie could have been at least a two-part movie, and they could have done so much with it, uh, and they just didn't. Although you and I both really like New Mutants. Um, Bunny, did you did you get to see the movie as well? Yes, I love it. So, uh, I, as I mentioned, I was always greatly disappointed with the X-Men franchise and the films, with the exceptions of Logan and New Mutants. Like, those right now are the only ones that I, I, I did really love it. I was very... Uh, happy with the way that Ileana was portrayed and you know she's such a, she's one of my favorites and she's such a badass and I'm, I was you know the whole film was done very well it felt more like a comic movie and a just a, a niche thing that I'm I will be very happy if they do continue it especially since uh, apparently the villain for the second movie would have actually been Mr. Sinister, and yes. they were going to actually cast John Hamm. Oh, that would be wonderful. One of the more, to circle back to Pride Month, uh, one of the most powerful things of New Mutants was how the lesbian relationship was framed from a female lens as well, because I'm so sick of movies that I go into that are, you know, marketed for queer women, like here for queer women. Um, but instead we got this masterpiece of a subplot that if, if you are a queer woman, at least like I'm speaking for myself here, the very first scene where you have, um, Danny Moonstar walking into the room and Rain looks at her, I went, is this, is this going to be a little, little gay? Uh, like they're just, they did such a good job of making it relatable to the female viewer and from a female lens instead of a hyper sexual male lens that women loving women relationships are usually portrayed in and i think that it does not get enough credit for that yes okay it should have been karma not wolfsbane but i still think it was masterfully done yeah i completely agree and that was one of the, that really was one of the best parts of the movie because it felt so natural and yes. it's like an aspect of x-men that's been there like we've said for almost 50 years and it never was really incorporated into the other media and seeing it there was pretty cool because it's like this is the one aspect of X-Men that we haven't seen, and we're seeing it here, and we're seeing it done really well. Yes, I, I agree that it was very natural, and it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the forced feeling of you know, what, what, it, I don't really have, <laughs> I don't have better words than Avil had to describe that, to, to say that it, from a woman's perspective, I very much enjoyed that it wasn't heavy handed. Yeah, like uh, one of the best examples I have from that film is there's a scene where they're in the shower together and they're talking and they're emotional and you can feel that there's tension and romantic feelings. And in every other movie to date where there's, you know, women in a relationship, I feel like we would have had a gratuitous kind of fan service like shower makeout scene, right? But instead, they give us that. They don't give us any, like, gratuitous, you know, romantic scenes. And then later we get the romantic payoff. And to me, that was very powerful. Because, like, as soon as I saw the shower scene, I was like, damn it, this is where they're going to, like, finally kiss. And it's just going to feel wrong. And it's going to just feel very, like, sexualized in a male way. But, no, I, I think that that shower scene for me was one of the moments where I was like, wow, this is this is natural. This is, you know... For the female viewer, for the queer viewer, um, and not just something added in to get, you know, attention. Now, looking at that, looking at what we've seen in X-Men so far in uh, media, media, movies, etc., 
I mean, outside of the outside of it, actually, more so to say, including the movies, but also including different like animated series, one-off specials. Um, I guess that we'll say the Generation X movie if we if we really need to. Um, <laughs> what would you like looking at that? What would you say best really does capture like those characters and storylines in terms of the attitudes, in terms of those messages that they bring across in the comics? I will let y'all go first, because I have controversial hot takes when it comes to X-Men media that is, you know, cartoons and movies. Uh, I I think they're starting to get it right. Um, I I might share some of those views that they've... I mean, the whole point of the X-Men is to celebrate diversity and that these are you know, superheroes, these are, this is a, you know, Xavier School was a safe place for them where they would not be outcasts and where they could, you know, be more accepted, even if it's just amongst each other. And I never really felt that was well represented, especially in the movies. Honestly, I think if anything best captured the X-Men is probably the Wolverine and the X-Men series from, um, uh, was it 2010? Thank you. 2008. Yes, yeah. that's that's what I was going to say, too, because people hate me for that. But to me, the 90s animated series is a pretty, you know, machete, liquefied version of the comics. Pretty one for one. But it it to me hasn't aged the best. And it's kind of just nostalgia fodder where I feel like really Wolverine and the X-Men is phenomenal at capturing the essence of what X-Men is. I actually consider X-Men the animated series not the worst X-Men series because the um, and I'm not including one-offs because Pride of the X-Men is so bad it's amazing. Cause... Oh, but I mean, <laughs> shouldn't Wolverine have an Australian accent? Fuck yeah, he should. But um, the only series that's actually worse is the X-Men anime because I I actually kind of enjoy it, but I'm like I so slowly crawled through 12 episodes that are 20 minutes long a piece and you introduce all these cool ideas and then you just take all those ideas away to completely not to completely get characters wrong and make uh, make Emma Frost the, the mom character and just put Storm in the background and only have her there for cool light shows, kind of like Halle Berry. But um, yeah, I, I would actually say that it's X-Men the Animator is not the worst adaptation for an for a series, but probably no. the second worst. It's just everyone puts that one on a pedestal for being the most accurate representation we've ever had. And it is a decent one for one for a bunch of classic arcs. But I I like a cartoon that can tell its own story and stand up on itself because I'll just pick up a comic if I if I wanted that, you know, like even when it comes to like Avengers cartoons like um, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, I believe it was. They they did Secret Invasion, but they told it in a new way that made it refreshing. And I think that that's what makes it, comic book TV shows good is when they can retell a story in a new way. So it's not something you can predict where I think that that's kind of the weak point of the animated series for me. It's good, but it's it's a one for one. Um, but no, don't you love Diet Legion in the anime? I mean, come on. Everyone loves a good Diet Legion. That's so bad. Um, God. But it, it was pretty. It was really pretty. Um, but that's about it. But um, yeah, for me, my two favorite X-Men shows are Wolverine and the X-Men and X-Men Evolution. And honestly, except for that first season of X-Men Evolution, where I'm like, you're really trying hard to find your feet and you keep falling over, which is pretty hilarious at the beginning. But it gets kind of sad. But um, 
Yeah, I would honestly say that outside of Days of Future Past, uh, First Class and X-Men 2, maybe not necessarily X-Men 2, that Wolverine, the X-Men, the X-Men Evolution definitely, definitely easily trounce any of the other live-action movies, any of the live-action movies or any of the animated series. And I wish I could say that I've seen them, but I remember when they came out, I was thinking to myself, this was them trying to milk the franchise because it was right on the coattails of the first couple of movies. I, I was afraid of that. I would just hate it. <laughs> Honestly, uh, take advantage of that Disney Plus if you have it, and uh, definitely go through them, because I, um, I was very much the same way when X-Men Evolution first came out, because I was also in that first season where I'm like, it's Spike and the Nightcrawler are doing shit. And I'm like, oh, that's boring. And then I actually like sat down to push my way through that first season and watch Wolverine and the X-Men's entirety, too. And I'm like, holy crap, these are both amazing. I was Apparently, I was just really dumb. Or they had a really bad first season for Evolution. I'm going to go with the first, second one because it makes me not dumb. They're honestly both really good. Yeah. I will check them out. Plus, I mean, we get X-23, who's pretty much Marvel's Harley Quinn. So without Evolution, we wouldn't have gotten her. Oh, I didn't know she was in any of those. That is awesome. Yeah, I, yeah. So she, yeah, she, she is like Harley Quinn from the animated series. How they kind of, you know, made this character that was supposed to be, you know, just in the animated series, and she was loved so much that they brought her into the comics. So I think it's interesting that both of those characters have actually taken off extremely well, <laughs> despite so re- both being introduced in animated series. I remember. Re- I mean, I, I have the X twenty three comics, and I remember that coming out. I didn't realize that had anything to do with with the, one of the cartoons. That was really funny. Yeah, in fact, Craig Kyle and Christopher Yost, who did that and they did the uh, 2010 X-Force series, Messiah Complex, once again, um, they got their, they started with X-Men Evolution, and then they kind of jumped over to the comics from there. The problem is that, that show, those, those two shows, I like them so much that we could basically take up the entire podcast and try not to, try not to I'm trying not to do that because I'm a because, well, let's say all three of us are tremendous nerds. Wolverine and the X-Men needs that season. They teased it, and I need it. Oh, I know. It's like, hey, here's Age of Apocalypse. Bye. And I'm like, really? Fucking really? I need it so much. I'm like, oh, I feel so betrayed. I'm like, can we put it? Like, everyone's like, oh, my God, bring back the animated series. Bring back the animated series. I'm like, can we just have, like, season three, please? Or season two? Or I forget if it was one season or two seasons. It was only one. But I'm like, just give me season two, and I'll be pleased. Yeah. Because we do season two is basically going to be Age of Apocalypse. And it would have been great. Or they would have been cruel and give us one episode and then go, go away from that. Wolverine and the X-Men had such a unique way of mixing X-Men storylines to make something new and fun. And I, I honestly, it's it's my favorite. And I, I will, you know, fight tooth and nail because that's a very apparently unpopular opinion um, online. But it, it's it's honestly worth the watch. I'm definitely going to watch that this weekend. I'm very excited now. The good thing is you can watch, like, because X-Men Evolution, while amazing, is also five seasons. So if you don't necessarily want to watch you can't necessarily cram all five seasons although i know you bunny you probably would be able to you'd probably find a way um <laughs> wolverine the x-men itself is its own separate animal too so you could actually watch that and not have to watch all of x-men evolution to set it up interesting i i still can't get past the long coat the long trench coat on cyclops though that's the only thing where i'm like why does he why is he the matrix <laughs> Really? Well, I love it. It makes his costume so much more interesting. I, I can't. 
I'll also, that's probably the only flaw in the show. I didn't like the way they wrote him in the beginning, and, but he got a lot better after, like, the first half of the series. I would agree, because it's hard because they wanted Wolverine to be the leader, but he's not. So they had to take Cyclops down a peg at the beginning to get it to make sense. And that part's a little bit frustrating, especially as someone who enjoys Cyclops in the comics. But then I think it really got its stride towards the end of the season. And my, my favorite character is Nightcrawler. So the fact that Nightcrawler basically had a whole story arc of uh, to himself, which in previous series he's either kind of there having shenanigans or he's there in the X-Men the Animated Series teaching Wolverine how to be Catholic. Um, it's a nice, <laughs> it's a nice change. Also, if they name uh, that, if they they need to let me become a writer and rename that episode the Winter Night Car makes Wolverine Catholic, and just go full It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Oh my God! Awesome. Just like the the Always Sunny jingle. <laughs> just picture that in the background now with uh, with the, the scene where do where do Wolverine's do praying at church. Do. <laughs> what is wrong with us? I think I'm pretty sure we're all going to hell. It's just going to happen. Probably. Yeah. We have good company. Right? Just a bunch of snarky people. <laughs> yeah, X-Men was uh, definitely the biggest influence on my childhood and my youth. It was so important to me, which is why I have a massive collection of the comics and of the action figures. And one of these days I will finish getting all of my crap unpacked and I will be able to show you guys what uh, all of my crap looks like. Heck yeah. Um, so it's, it's just been in storage for years. I mean, and everything is, you know, pre-1998. So, you know, nothing new and cool, but all, all the old and cool stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like, I'm definitely not up on you know the last 10 years of the franchise and what it's been doing, but it meant so much to me. And I love, you know, all of the books, for, you know, from everything that Claremont did, everything that Scott did. I, I felt like they were just incredible writers and storytellers. And it was nothing you know it, it was not your atypical superheroes and superheroes never i love batman but outside of batman you know batman's just dark and and gritty but you know outside of the batman franchise i didn't really think anything of superheroes until i became aware of the x-men you know in the early 90s and just was like wow this is this is amazing, and this is everything, and it was just my world forever. Um, yeah, yeah, and to to think that it is still relevant, and because the MCU is becoming this massive thing, and and it's it's worth so much money. I'm I hope that the X Men really eventually is done better and it looks like they're they're doing better with it and that these new more talented screenwriters will be able to get their hands around it because you know i have to say you know, i i really enjoyed watching wandavision but at the other hand i'm like this is house of m this is an x-men story where are the x-men <laughs> so it's like it i liked the show 
But I'm like, they've distilled all of the X-Universe out of Marvel, <laughs> and I understand why, but it's it's just disappointing. Like, why can't the world... They've, they've opened up fandom to a whole group of people that probably had never picked up a comic book before who are now in love with these movies. Why can't they do that for the X-Men or for the X-Universe? And funny enough, like, really, in the comics in the last three years, they really have. And I feel, like you said, that's a really, that is a really good sign, because that means that they're able, that they're devoting that kind of talent and that kind of time to really kind of regenerating the characters, especially after the last few years. And this, and I'm someone who liked the Brian Michael Bendis run. A lot of people would, like, would possibly just drag me to the street and make my life miserable for that. But um, I feel like that's a really good sign, like you said, that we're going to see that kind of that kind of improvement, that kind of overhaul, especially with the with the X Men becoming part of the MCU. I've always had I wanted to see what you, I wanted to see what you all thought of this. I always had a concept that instead of uh, instead of introducing the X Men just immediately in their own movie, I want after one of the next big MCU movies, I want the post credit to all of a sudden be so we start seeing this news broadcast. We start seeing uh, almost a takeoff on punt, like the Fox News style pundits. And we start talking about these these people, these monsters, these freaks, things are less than human. And news stories of them hurting people, attacking people, living in our uh, living in our underground, living in our city, we're not even aware of them. And then introducing a pre showing a tele, a televangelist named um, William Stryker and talking about the evils of mutants and showing his specials where he's basically talking about these demons. And then that's and then the last shot we have is something akin to uh, Marvel's number two, where we see the X Men in the alley and there's the red light of Cyclops' beam, and have that be the post credit of one of the X of one of the MCU movies, and introduce the X Men that way. Yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> For me, I really I think what makes the X Men the X Men is the struggle, and I don't want to see year one of that. I don't I don't want to see this is the first mutant to pop up in this universe. I, I really hope that when they open the multiverse, we're handed a glimpse at a world where mutants are the heroes. Because either they've been sleeper cell mutants, which is essentially like the Eternals plotline, or they're so new that all the characters are going to have to be extremely young and going through puberty for it to make sense. So I, I really hope for me anyway, that the mutants are introduced through kind of a multiverse and it's a world where like, you know, they can't comprehend what being a hero like the Avenger, the Avengers means. They've never been celebrated. Maybe there's some type of battle world thing that falls out from all this multiverse of madness and everyone's slammed into one universe to give us like a sense of 616. But I, I think having them still have their history for me is going to have the most impact. Yeah, I agree. And um, the good thing about that, like we we're saying, especially with the younger generation that was introduced in these last, in these last four X Men movies, we can actually take advantage of having these actors and have them be that generation of have them being that generation of mutants that we introduce via this alternate reality. Because for me, in a way, even though I, even though I have a great amount of nostalgia for the original X Men team. From the uh, first, from the first, from the uh, first trilogy or whatever it is, really at this point, um, for me, I really, I really gravitated 
towards the X towards the younger X Men team starting with first class and leading on from there. Because you know, as we all know, we're all definitely New Mutants fans of both the comic books and the movies, and it kind of had that feel to it. And I really would love to see that team in particular um, introduced into the MCU uh, through the whole through the multi-dimensional concept you had. Yeah, I agree. How many times can we reinvent introducing the same five or six characters? I mean, there's the the, the X versus so much broader than that. Uh, they have so many to play with. I mean, just because. Hugh Jackman doesn't want to keep making movies doesn't mean X-Men are dead. Right, and it's like, I, I don't need to see Cyclops in the orphanage. I don't need to see, you know, Jean's friend getting run over. Um, I, I I just need it to make sense. And I feel like if we have them already established, maybe they're, you know, just graduating or something. I feel like if they're just graduating or something, you know, they're established and then maybe we have a new mutant team that we can follow. Maybe they're getting their powers. Maybe they're, you know, going through it. But we've got our core characters that we know and love already established coming over from this other universe. Like, we don't need to see Uncle Ben die again, right? It's it's the same thing, you know? And I think that that is something that, that Feige is well aware of and I wouldn't be surprised if you know, Fantastic Four and X-Men are coming in, you know, either the very, very end of Phase 4 or beginning of Phase 5, because he's probably setting, you know, multiversal groundwork so that we don't lose the rich history of these characters. In terms of mutant metaphor, in terms of, like we said, the diversity of not only X-Men themselves, but the audience and readers of the X-Men, is there a particular change or an area where you can possibly see improvement? I can think of two in particular, but I wanted to hear... Um, your takes on that first improvement as in, or do you mean kind of just like what their allegory is at each given time? Um, both the allegory and the, um, and the representation that just has not really been necessarily explored yet, or it could be explored better. Well, as we already discussed, the, the gay agenda has not been really well represented in the books. Not, not overtly. Yeah. It's always been there but not addressed, and that would be nice to see. I feel like when it first started out, right, the the book comes out in 1964, 1963, you know, um, clearly civil rights movement, right? We've got, like, these two factions that are going about things drastically different. We've got the more peaceful side. We've got the more get-shit-done side. You know, they're fighting. Both of them are coming at it with really good, you know, philosophies, and then... You know, we get into the 80s and we get this this techno-organic virus, which is a little, you know, a heavy-handed allegory for, you know, AIDS. And and we see them starting to be a little more blatant about what they're referring to. And then I feel like in the 2000s, it just hard cuts to not really following social issues. I feel like for me, that's when you start seeing it be less about mirroring what's happening today and more about telling unique stories. Um, but through that, I feel like they can express those same issues by actually addressing characters. And that's where we start seeing gay characters, you know, characters that actually are gay or, you know, are dealing with racism or are dealing with X, Y, Z instead of veiling that so much between, you know, not just coming out and saying it. And I think that's the power of the modern books. Like right now there's an X title that's just all queer characters. Right now that there is an X title that just deals with, you know, 
coming down on human trafficking and, and racial issues. And there's a book where, you know, I, I, X Corp, you know, there's a whole bunch, there's a whole book on mutant religion. Like, I think the Hickman era is really like, okay, let's dive deep um, into this. But I, I think it's just a product of how storytelling has changed over time. For me, at least, that's kind of how I, I read into X-Men. The one thing that I'm really, that I really look at in terms of the X titles uh, something that they they did for a long time that we kind of gotten away from, uh, which is definitely a positive, and that was the whole idea of having a mutant character basically being like, this character is a representative for all racism ever. And it's like, how how does this particular mm-hmm. character, how does Cyclops, uh, and even though I'm a huge Cyclops fan, I know you are as well, uh, how does Cyclops represent uh, ra- represent racism? And as a mirror, and a mirror for that, Cyclops is someone you can, but you pop sunglasses on him, and he can basically pass around anybody. So uh, you start talking to him because, well, we love Cyclops, but he is socially awkward. And that's something that really has gotten better, because we're we're less in that area of the general catch-all of mutants, where let's say you look at something like looking back at something like Star Trek. I love Star Trek, but one of the big things about Star Trek was like. With some, well, not necessarily Star Trek, but like just sci-fi as a whole, especially like the 90s, early 2000s. It's like basically any character who was black was an alien. Or was mm-hmm. basically, like, perfect example is uh, Idris Elba in Star Trek Beyond, where it's like, hey, you, we're just going to put shit all over you and make you a CGI alien for the entire movie. And that's really something that we don't see as much. It's still there. But the big issue that I have, and we touched on it earlier with uh, Monet in Generation X, and the editorial retconning of that, we don't really see any disabled characters in the X-Men universe. I mean, the only one I can just think of, oddly enough, is Cyclops, because he has brain damage, and that's why he can't control his abilities. Have you been reading... um, So how up-to-date are you? Um, I don't want to necessarily spoil things. I'm basically a month behind. Okay. How much do you care about spoilers? Not if it's with the not necessarily if it's not hugely affecting the story, I don't necessarily have an huge issue with spoilers. I think like in, in general, like we were talking about, I think that comics as a whole, you really see a pivot from we can't come out and say this, so we're going to use a metaphor with flashy white characters to tell you to something in the current comics where it's yes, mutant issues are issues. But here's actually a character that represents this thing going through this thing directly, and we're going to work through it. And one of the big things, you know, besides race and sexuality that I'm starting to see pop up in comics more is is disabilities. Whether or not um, it's it's paying notice to characters that have physical disabilities a little bit more and not just magic wanding away their disabilities when the plot needs it to. But also mental health. Um, recently, there was a whole plot point with Malice um, that dealt a lot with, you know, like suicidal thoughts. And, you know, there's there's characters that have really bad PTSD that they're diving into. And there's characters who want to be happy in this paradise but are suffering with depression. And they're they're really starting to dive into human mental health aspects in ways that I didn't really think we would in comics. And it's very nice to see. And it's something fun to see them finally be able to explore without having to be like, oh, yeah, Legion just has multiple personalities. That's just his mutant power. Or, you know, kind of 
kind of writing things off, like um, Monet and Penance, with it being like, oh, that's her twin, totally. Um, and they're finally getting to kind of, you know, step back and be like, okay, but like a mutant can be autistic or a mutant can have anxiety issues or, you know, X, Y, Z. And it's, it's very, very intriguing that they, you know, have writers that reflect that as well. Um, because I feel like the scope of who can be a writer at Marvel is starting to expand. I will say the one thing I'm kind of disappointed with, because we talked about X Factor, especially with it being an entire, entire team that is uh, LGBT. Um, it's being canceled after issue 10. I'm very upset. Yeah. That's sad. It was my favorite X title. I love seeing those characters. I like how normal and not, um, I feel like objectified is the wrong word. How normal and not like over the top they, they draw attention to the queer relationships. Like it really feels like it's just like any other comic book relationship. They're not trying to be, you know, flashy with it. And I love it. Like we we have we have an LGBT writer handling all these LGBT characters and they were gonna have an entire subplot with you know how being transgender would work with the resurrection protocols that I was really looking forward to and you know the fact that it got canceled is just a very very big letdown to me. I mean I'm glad that we're gonna see Leah Williams on the books following this, but unless they don't find other ways to strong to use these characters. And do so in a, and do so in a way that matches up on this level. I'm gonna, I, this is the one real sore spot right now for me for the X titles. Yeah, it was pretty much the only one I was going super out of my way to read every week. Like I kind of skim through since I work at a shop. Every time one comes out to see, like, oh yeah, you know what, this one looks interesting. I'll read it. But I, I've really fallen off a lot of them because a lot of them are just very, very hit or miss for me. Um. Excalibur and X-Factor are pretty much the only ones I have continued reading, genuinely read week to week. So I, I really hope that it's just kind of, you know, Leah needing to fill other gaps in in Marvel right now, and she'll come back eventually to continue X-Factor, because the team, the storyline, everything about it really is, is, to me, one of the stronger X-Titles, and I, I think they're making a mistake by canceling it. And I had no idea that this series even existed. I go off and I will read it now, and then I'll be very sad that it'll be over. It, it's really worth it. Well, I appreciate you bringing it up, because uh, I will. I mean, that's one of the great things about uh, tablets. When tablet com- computers first came out, I'm like, I don't need one of these. This is just like a smartphone, but bigger. But I, the only thing I like having a tablet for is being able to download comics. <laughs> So I will go and download them and read that this weekend. And then Ian was like, Bunny, check out this Marvel Unlimited thing. <laughs> I'm like, oh, good. Okay, it's over. It's like, I have new crack. <laughs> yeah. Sleep. Sleep, what's that? See, I blame myself for being like, hey, here's an entire New Mutants reading list. You can just binge the shit out of it. If you want a really good book to study in 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 how they're writing mental health, the latest arc of Excalibur between, you know, Quanan and Betsy reconciling and then having Malice, one of the best written things I've seen in a while when it comes to that kind of stuff. Teeny Howard really has a grasp on how to correctly write, you know, mental health issues without it being like, oh, this character has a mental illness, you know, like it's very just like, 
oh, yeah, no, this is this is something cool. And we're not blaming the mental illness on why they're doing this. But you can clearly see, especially if they're things you struggled with. Oh, yes, this is how this is being written. And it, it, I, I can't suggest it enough if you're trying to find, you know, more examples of that being flushed out in books. And just as I mean, just just for the fact that all that all of us are like longtime X-Men readers, that is a book that basically rewards you. Uh, not only is it just a really good series, and it ties really uh, t- t- very much in the book storylines like Ten of Swords as well, but it's also one of those books that rewards you for having that knowledge. It really, really does. Like, Teeny's not afraid to pull out weird, small nuggets of information that you kind of forgot, or character relationships that, if you didn't read the original Excalibur, you won't pick up on, but you don't need to pick up on either, because if you're a new reader, it still makes sense in a cohesive way. So she does a really good job of balancing telling a story for new readers, but really, really rewarding those of us who have followed Excalibur since it came out. And I think that that's that's a really, really great sign, because I feel like that's not something writers are often able to do without leaving new new readers being completely lost. So I, I really am excited to see what she does in the future, honestly, because I, I've been just about impressed with everything she's written for Marvel. Yeah, that's honestly the first thing I've read by her. I need to go back and track down further work. So uh, with uh, so with that, with our discussion, that we've, everything that we've talked over so far, did anyone else have anything that they wanted to touch on um, before we get everything wrapped up? I, as a woman, I've always appreciated the strong female characters and and also the fact that the complexity of the characters emma frost has always been one of my favorite examples of just she's a strong woman who just has her own agenda and you know painting i appreciate that they don't always paint villains black and white and say this person is clearly bad and this person is clearly good and they've I think they've done very well with characters such as that to to show that the world is not black and white and people are more than just their appearance and their agenda and you know I'm I'm glad that there's you know less slut shaming (laughs) In, in the universe, uh, you know, the, the X-Men universe, because that's, I feel like these characters are necessary to to get this, this point across. I, I agree. I, I think that X-Men usually has a really good grip on, you know, even, even making villainous characters like an Emma or a Mystique have clear motives and act on those and you know you can feel a certain kind of way about them but at the end of the day they're they're very fleshed out very real feeling women um for me i guess my closing remarks would be the best sign that you know x-men and marvel as a whole is moving towards accurately depicting diversity whether it's sexuality you know race religion whatever is reflected in their writers you know x titles specifically have had a really high ratio of, of female writers and of um, queer writers, uh, like lots, lots of um, LGBT women and a trans writer for the Cyclops snapshot that came out. And I think that, you know, seeing these people come from all different backgrounds and all different sexualities is a really good sign when you're writing characters that are supposed to reflect that. And I, I, I think that, you know, seeing more diversity in the bullpen of Marvel is the healthiest, happiest sign I can, I can 
point to going forward in comics. Yeah, I'm right. I'm right there with both of you on that. Um, both of my parents were in the military. My um, mother, she left the military when I was born, but um, my my mom has always been a really strong influence on me in particular because she got me into things like uh, into things like foreign cinema. She was huge into like the whole like punk movement when she grew up in New York back in the 70s and 80s. Um, she was she was fully she was bilingual in both English in English and Chinese, and she knows how to fire an M16 with a grenade launcher. And um, so one of my one of the big things I've always grew to appreciate, like you said, like like both of you touched on, are the um, really strong female characters in these stories. Claremont himself, his mother was a his mother. Up to I think up to her 80s, up to her 70s, up to probably up to her like 60s, 70s, was actually still flying uh, planes, uh, flying planes both for the military and on her own accord. And I think that was something I could definitely relate to is having those kind of strong female characters that you didn't see in a lot of fiction. I mean, my dad's my dad's boss when he was here in Texas, her her name was Colonel Hayes, and she was like one of those badass people that I knew. And it was an aspect that really, in many ways, even Really, only up to the last couple of years, you didn't see a lot of comic book titles, and you really see within X Men, and it's just a really great aspect of it. But that's that's my kind of final takeaway on that. Briefly, I love how if you just follow Claremont's work, there's so much to do with female pilots. Great point. <laughs> like it's just it's one of those things. Like you were you were talking about it, and it just reminded me like you can really tell you know where people are inspired, especially and empowered by you know, women in their lives. Like Claremont's mom was, was also in the military and it it really shows in his work. A lot of the strong females that he writes have something to do with the military. And I think that, you know, having these personal experiences really influences not only what we connect to, but what we create. And I think that that, that's really, you know, why seeing more, you know, more backgrounded people come into comics, it, it gives us perspectives we might not have thought of. Exactly. Very well said. So, with that, I wanted to th- I wanted to thank both of you for coming on the episode for the newest episode of Circuit 42. Val, I wanted to thank you for uh, returning to the show for this episode. Bunny, uh, welcome aboard. It's the first episode of Circuit 42 uh, on this wonderful world called the inter- the internet webs with all its anger and all its social media. Uh, where can people find you? Oh well, I'm on Instagram at Bunny Sandifer S A N D E F U R. Um, I am on a whole bunch of social media. So I am on Instagram and YouTube and Facebook under Oddfell and on Twitter as Oddfell with zero because someone has my username, angstily enough. Um, and I'm also on TikTok under Oddfell as well. Um, so honestly, every platform should be very close in name except Twitter where it's a zero. And you can find Circuit42 on, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, and you can listen to us on both um iTunes and on Spotify. And with that, uh, thank you all again for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a great episode of Circuit 42, and have a great night.